This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, former White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders talks about her book, Speaking for Myself. She talks about her life and her time in the Trump administration, interviewed by Bloomberg News White House reporter Jennifer Jacobs. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Very good. Thank you. This is fun to be asking you questions again. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like old times. We're right back into the normal routine here. So your book is less about him. It's less about President Trump and it's more about you. It, it's sort of the greatest hits of your memories from your time at the White House. But I wanted to ask you, you do have some very unvarnished, some great behind the scenes tales but surely there are some secrets, some dirty laundry that you don't reveal. So I just wanted to ask you, what was your thinking on that? How did you choose what to not include? Well, I feel like there are so many books out there that have kind of the negative and the nasty and the score settling. And one, that's not who I am as a person. But two, I wanted people to get the different side um, and a different perspective. And frankly, after two and a half years in the White House and another almost year on the campaign, my experience working for the president was a very positive one. I loved my job. I liked the people that I worked with. That doesn't mean we didn't have difficult days and that there weren't moments that I'd love to block out for the rest of my life. But overall, I really um, believed in what we were doing and I enjoyed um, working for the president and I actually liked my colleagues. And so I wanted a book that reflected that and reflected my experience. And that was what I tried to capture um, in those 12 chapters. There is lots of interesting stuff in here. One thing that caught my eye you talk about you were in the situation when the discussion about Syria was on the table. And you talk about how the president asked you for your opinion, your recommendation on what to do. And his comment to you was an interesting one. It, he thought you would be more ruthless. Talk about, can you say what you recommended? I can't, unfortunately, tell you exactly what I recommended because um, some of those moments are still classified discussions. But it was one of the things I loved about the president is that he really listened to everybody in the room and took into account everybody's thoughts and feelings. Obviously, he wasn't necessarily looking to me for military advice, um, but just a different perspective. and. Um, he empowered, I think, the people around him uh, to have opinions, to share them, and to speak up. And so I always appreciated that no matter what the situ situation was, he involved me in that conversation. And, um, you know, that was one of the examples that I could show him doing that. There was a, another interesting part of the book where you talked about being part of the preparation for the confirmation for Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And you talk about some very uncomfortable conversations that you had in there and how difficult that prep was and just how difficult that whole, that whole period was. Do you, you asked questions about his sex life, in fact, was one of the things that you guys felt you had to ask him about. Did that help formulate White House officials' opinions about what had happened in that period of his life? Or talk to us a little bit about that. I, I think for most people, we already felt uh, very comfortable and very confident in Justice Kavanaugh 
and what he had walked us through. But one of the things we knew was going to happen was that nothing was off limits for the Democrats who would be grilling Justice Kavanaugh, and he had to be fully prepared. That didn't make it any less uncomfortable to ask a future Supreme Court justice about his, you know, whether or not he liked to drink beer, which I think the whole world knows by now that he did. Um, and even more uncomfortable was talking to him about um, any relationship he had, particularly, um, you know, the most intimate details of his personal relationships. The other part of that that made it uncomfortable wasn't just that back and forth, but it was knowing that he would be, this was a closed door setting, but we knew the questions we were asking him would likely be asked in public in front of his young daughters. And for me as a parent, um, that made that process that much more difficult. And I think we saw the emotion from Justice Kavanaugh in that room that day. And certainly, again, I think the whole world watched in astonishment in some way um, when he talked about his daughter and her feelings throughout that process um, and just the spirit of that little girl. And so um, I think it was necessary for us to do it, but it didn't make it any more comfortable <laughs> that we had to ask him those questions. And you actually played the role of Dianne Feinstein, the, the top Democrat on the Senate Judiciary. Yeah, I think that's the only time in my life I can uh, say that Dianne Feinstein, I was trying to get her head. Most of the time I want to avoid uh, being inside Senator Feinstein's head and uh, trying to think like she does. I really don't understand a lot of that thought process, but that's fine. Um, but it was interesting to try to take on that role and, um, you know, be somebody who I fundamentally and politically disagree with, but try to embody that person in that moment. Another part of, of your book that's captured a lot of attention since it's been published is the North Korea sections. Um, you dedicate a lot of time to that. There's so many interesting anecdotes in that part that I didn't know about something that the pre you talked with the president about maybe tweeting as you were flying into Singapore, something you whispered to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at the expanded bilat, something that happened at the luncheon. There, there's just so many great things in there that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, one of the reasons that I thought it was important to have an entire uh, chapter on that is because I do think it's a, been a big part of the presidency that while it's been covered, it hasn't really, I think, been a deep dive kind of on the behind the scenes of all the things that led up to that first meeting. And so I wanted to highlight that and also just share my experience in watching President Trump as a leader on the global stage. Um, and I felt like there was a good entertainment value there as well, because there are so many interesting moments um, that had never been reported. And I wanted to, to share that. Um, certainly, you know, having my day start on the, the actual summit day itself, the very first thing, a phone call with Dennis Rodman, ending with, you know, joking with the president and Chief Kelly about um, the wink from Kim Jong-un was quite the remarkable day, to say the least. It probably will go down as one of the more memorable days of my lifetime. So as the president was uh, landing, as Air Force One was about to land, apparently he wanted to tweet, getting ready to land in Singapore. This is Chairman Kim's only chance. He will either live or die. <laughs> what Not does that mean? 
not not want to tweet, but he joked about tweeting that. I mean, it was kind of, you know, this was a moment of either we're going to, you know, develop a better relationship and continue uh, to make progress, or maybe we don't and things go a totally different direction. Um, and thankfully that didn't happen. I do think that there was some progress made. Certainly no one, um, I think, is under the impression that getting Kim to give up his nuclear weapons is going to be an easy task by any stretch of the imagination. But the president did get some concessions from North Korea and did make a lot of progress in that front, certainly from where we started not that long before that meeting where the president was talking about fire and fury and whose nuclear button worked better. There was also a part um, right when you guys got to the Capella Hotel on Sentosa Island the president was talking about missed calls. Um, the press, uh, the motorcade had arrived. The press was in one hotel room waiting for things to start. You and some of the other staff were in another hotel room feeling a little bit on, on nerve. You wrote um, a little bit on edge. And the president said, what calls have I missed? And his personal aide, Jordan Karam, said, well, you missed some calls from some members of Congress. And then there was another call that he, he had missed. Tell us about that. It's no, it's no secret that the president is a um, avid golfer, and um, you know, close friends with Jack Nicholas and somebody who he's known a very long time. And when his name came up on the list of missed calls, you could see a little spark from the president. I think he just wanted somebody that he could have a lighthearted conversation with. Um, I think he knew anybody he talked to that was a in the Senate or the House. Um, would want to focus solely on, you know, you should do this or you should do that. He wasn't looking for advice. I think he just wanted to talk to a friend in that moment. And he found that in Jack and they had a nice kind of lighthearted exchange before the president went on um, just a few minutes after to one of the, the most historic meetings probably in U.S. history. Right. So you read about just before he took the stage at 9.03 a.m., his last phone call was to Jack Nicholas. And then it's just just some, some fun details in there. And then you talk about um, when you were sitting down at the expanded bilat and it was the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor John Bolton, Chief of Staff John Kelly, um, Matt Pottinger, who was the Asia Director for the NSC at the time. And then on the North Korean side, it was Kim Jong-un and Kim Yong-chol and his sister, who was essentially an enforcer. And then you said something to Mike Pompeo oh, as you were sitting down. So we're, walk we're walking in and getting ready to sit down. And I think, you know, there's obviously, this is an intense meeting. The stakes are high. And in my mind, I was hoping I'll, I'll lighten the mood a little bit, kind of make a joke to Secretary Pompeo. Um, and, and he joked back with me, I, I think, a little bit. And I turned to him, I said, you know, Mr. Secretary Mike, do you think um, I'm the only person here who either hasn't killed somebody or ordered somebody to be killed? And he kind of looked around the room and he goes, yeah, you're the only one. And so I was like, well, that wasn't exactly the answer I was looking for. I was meaning to, to lighten this up. And so we have that kind of exchange and then sit down for the, the real meeting to take place and things to really kick off. So you note in the book, and you've, you've said this many times before, that you were the first mom who became the White House press secretary. And a lot of your book is focused on themes of motherhood and the role of, of the children um, in your life and your role as a mother and how in balancing that role, being a wife and a mom and also being in a very demanding role at the White House. And 
you don't shy away from getting into some of that. You talk about a very extended labor with your, with your first child. You talk about the epidural. You talk about things that you said while you're in the hospital. You really go there. And then you also tell some pretty unvarnished stories about the stress that you felt about missing things that were happening in your kids' lives. So, and actually in one example, you had to um, pretend that your son George's birthday was on a different day because you knew you were not going to be able to be there on a specific day. So share some stories about that and, and some of the things that you, you describe in the book about just being a mom and, and also being the, the press secretary. Yeah, in addition to wanting people to have another side of the president, I wanted people, um, I, I think, to have a better idea of who I was and really share my own story. And I didn't feel like I could do that if I didn't open up in a way, um, you know, that other people could relate to women and moms in particular. And one of the things that I find um, you know, in talking to my friends and women around the country is that women can be our own worst enemies. We are our toughest critics. We can be very hard on one another. So I felt like it was important to kind of open myself up. That was one of the reasons I talked so extensively um, about that difficult labor of my first child. It's one of the reasons um, I went into detail even about my postpartum depression after my first child was born is I wanted women to feel like like they had somebody that had been where they were and feel able to open up and know that we have a little bit more of a support system out there, I think, than we sometimes realize. And I knew it was important for me to open up and be honest about some of those difficult moments as much as it was important to share some of the joyous moments too. Um, motherhood, I think, is probably one of the most exhausting, difficult things that you can do, but it's also the most incredible um, experience of my life. And so I thought it was important to share both sides, both the difficult side as well as the fun uh, and funny side that my kids certainly provide a lot of content and um, keep things interesting and keep us humble. You know, your kids, you may be a, a big deal on TV, but your kids will remind you that you're just regular, regular old mom at home. And I think that balance is extremely important and one I really tried to strike in the book. There was one moment where you described how George was offended because he kept waving to you and you didn't wave back. Yeah, George, George did not understand that when I was on TV and he could see me, that I couldn't see him. He's still, he's five now and he still struggles with that. So occasionally if I know that um, he might get to watch, I'll, I'll have to do a little hair behind the ear. So that's a signal for George to know like, hey, George, I'm watching, I see you. Um, and that was one of the big struggles of being a mom in an all-consuming 24-7 job is not being able to have that time, certainly not as much time as you would like to have. And so one of the things that was important for us and, and for me in those moments was to really try to be intentional and really try to be purposeful. Um, some days I might only have five or 10 minutes. And so I put my phone away and made sure that in those moments, I was very focused on them and they knew that they were a priority. And I think that can be very difficult and very challenging for all working moms. And um, so I wanted to talk about, you know, some of the challenges that we faced and how we tried to overcome some of that difficulty as well. Yeah, you mentioned how your dad used to take you on a weekly breakfast and that, would, that helped you as a child. 
it, it was it was a moment every Wednesday until I graduated from high school. I went to breakfast with my dad, and it was protected time. And um, it didn't matter where we went, or you know, sometimes we went to again like McDonald's, or we ate breakfast at home, and he cooked breakfast, or we might go to a nicer, more exciting breakfast restaurant. But I always knew that that was my time um to have with my dad and it was protected and it was one of the many ways that he showed me that i was a priority and um that he wanted to make sure that we had some of that one-on-one -on -one quality time and i've tried to do that same thing with my kids so that they understand that i'm spending every day the work that we're doing is um not because we don't want to be with them but also because those things are important too but we want them to know that they're always a priority you had one passage where you wrote, my kids definitely weren't the ones coming to school with the perfectly composed lunch or organic homemade items in a bento box complete with a handwritten poem on their napkin. Uh, most days we were lucky to find the time at all to pack a lunch and not forget the drink or a snack. And then there was one year when it was George's birthday and you just knew you weren't gonna be able to be home. And so you pretended that his birthday was on a different day and celebrated then. And you said your husband, Brian, just, just rolled with it. So it sounded like there were many days, including days when you, worked an all-nighter there were times when you came home and you'd had no sleep at all and you came home and did things with the kids and then had to turn around and go right back to the white house yeah and there were a lot of moments like that thankfully george was young enough that he didn't notice that his birthday was celebrated two days late um i actually had to do that twice um but now not only is he old enough but if i thought i could get away with it again my oldest scarlet would quickly let me know um that that is not okay and that was one of the the reasons that i ultimately made the decision to leave the white house is because i didn't want to miss any more moments like that with my kids and um, so stepping away allowed me to have a little bit more control over my own schedule and and be able to to be part of those birthday moments and not miss that going back again you know talking about the perfect lunches and the perfect birthday parties i think that so often um we see on social media in particular why i think it can be a great tool and i use it frequently I think it also is one of the most dangerous things in our society for uh, mom's mental state because you see the highlight reel. You see all of the best moments of everybody's life. They're going on this great vacation or they have this perfectly composed family photo or wow, look at this great birthday party they've thrown for their kids. And we put so much pressure on ourselves to perform and to live up to the best moments of everybody's life. Nobody's posting, you know, the meltdowns in the grocery store or the brothers and sisters fighting it out in the kitchen floor, the window getting broken, you know, from a baseball going through. That's not what you see most of the time. Uh, certainly every once in a while you'll stumble upon one of those moments, but I think we put so much pressure to be perfect that we forget sometimes to just enjoy the moment and enjoy the imperfect. And so I really tried to put a big emphasis on that in my book and partly as a reminder to all the moms out there, but also a reminder for myself that it doesn't have to be perfect for it to be important and for your kids to know that you really love them and that you matter. And I think it was Huck who made a, a big impression on, on one, I think it was a take your kids to work day event, or maybe it was Halloween. I can't remember. Maybe it was both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are some good Huck stories at the White House. 
Huck is not one to be easily forgotten. So, um, but you name a kid Huck, you sort of set a certain expectation for him in life that he's going to be a little bit rough around the edges. And he has certainly lived up to that. I think every single moment of every day, he um, tests my patience on a daily basis, but he has a huge heart. Um, and I loved including my kids in the things that I was doing. So as much as possible, I would try to bring them with me to an event or um, somehow engage them in the process because I wanted them to know why it was important for us to be involved and serve in the first place. And I knew that it would be difficult to take all three kids to any particular event, so I would rotate. And Bring Your Kid to Work Day came up and it was Huck's turn uh, to go with me. It was pretty young at the time, it was about four. And I debated, is Huck old enough? Most of the kids I knew that were coming were seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. And I decided at the end of the day, there might not be that many opportunities for me to bring Huck with me to work at the White House. So uh, I took a roll of the dice. I took Huck with me. Brian was on standby, you know, phone in hand all day, waiting on a call to say, I can't take it anymore. Nothing's happening. You got to come get him. But Huck was actually on perfect behavior all day, and we'd had just a really great day making memories together. And the big moment, sort of the culmination of the day for all the kids, is to come to the White House Rose Garden, and the president and vice president were going to come out and greet the kids and take pictures. Um, we had invited all of the press to bring their kids as well. So I went in and I was briefing the president in the Oval Office and explaining to him, you'll go out, you'll take the picture. Reminder, half of the kids, their parents are reporters, so you might watch what you say. And um, as you can imagine, he naturally completely ignored my advice. And we're sitting there and we're talking and we notice that the bushes in the Rose Garden start to violently shake. And I think, well, that's odd. And about the time I'm sort of processing what's happening, this little blonde head pops up and runs full speed towards the window of the Oval Office and pushes his face up against the glass. President's kind of taken aback, like, oh my gosh, there's, there's a little boy looking into the Oval Office. And I'm like, yes, sir, that's my son, Huck. And he kind of laughs. He goes, well, Sarah, at least he's handsome. And uh, not to let that be Huck's only mark on the day. So we kind of have a laugh. And then the president gets up and he walks outside and he's walking down that famous colonnade in the Rose Garden. And I'm following just, you know, 10 or 15 feet behind him. And here comes Huck again, this time running full speed directly at the president. The president sort of crouches a little bit, getting ready to like receive Huck. And right about the moment he gets in front of the president, he sidesteps him, goes around him and runs back and jumps into my arms where the president turns around and kind of looks at me like, are you kidding me? This kid again? <laughs> and uh, we laughed about it. But the, the moment that gave me a little bit of uh, happiness in it all, one, it was very funny. And, um, but two, for every kid that was out there, the president of the United States is the most important person uh, in that rose garden. But for my son, I was, which meant I knew I hadn't totally screwed him up. I hadn't done everything wrong just yet, that his mom was still the most important person and who his focus was on. 
So are you starting to think about your future political plans? I ask that given that you, you, the kids are so much a part of your life right now since you left the White House, um, I believe in January of last year. So are you starting to think about things like how would you handle COVID in Arkansas or handle the unemployment or, or things like that? Are those things kind of questions running through your head these days? I mean, I think for everybody, we're, we're kind of looking at how you would handle a particular situation. Um, for me personally, in terms of what the future holds right now, my goal is to help the president get reelected in 2020. Um, I'd love to see Republicans take back the House and never have to say Speaker Pelosi again. And um, I'll make a decision about whether or not I run for office. The Arkansas governor's race is in 2022. And um, as soon as we get through with 2020 and we help get the president reelected, you know, we'll, we'll make a decision and an announcement on, on what that looks like for our family. There was, um, you do write about the best of the president in your book and you do write about, you know, some of the things that are maybe not his most flattering qualities and his use of coarse language is one of them. And you write about that very frankly, especially at one time, um, at one Christmas party at the White House, when the president and you and your daughter Scarlett were talking and the president was telling you something about the media, I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was, it was a Sunday and we had gone through the, the photo line with our family and taken a picture with the president and the first lady. And um, my husband and the boys had kind of walked off. I think the boys had actually run off and Brian was chasing after them. And Scarlett and I were standing there and the president's very tall and she's not very tall. And so he's focused on me and we're talking. Um, and he was complaining about a particular Sunday show that he's not a big fan of. And um, he used some, you know, he dropped the F-bomb. And I was like, whoa, I was like, Mr. President, you can't say that. He's like, what? And he goes, oh. And, and then, you know, cusses again. He's like, I'm sorry. Um, and knowing the president, I mean, he's a New Yorker in his 70s. And I don't think we're changing anything um, anytime soon. I don't think it comes as any surprise to anybody um, that the president may use foul language from time to time. And so I wasn't surprised. And I, I'm still hopeful that my daughter didn't fully hear exactly what he said, but we kind of laughed about it and, and moved on pretty quickly from there. But um, another good reminder to, um, you know, keep track of what your kids can hear every once in a while a little more closely, especially in the world. This president probably uses the F-bomb more than most Americans realize, I have a feeling. Um, so we can tell from your writing which of your colleagues that you had a good working relationship with and which colleagues that maybe you were a little less fond of. I can tell um, how much you liked the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and the president used to tease you about how he was your favorite. There are other passages where you write um, some pretty straightforward feelings about National Security Advisor John Bolton. Um, there are some brief mentions of Steve Bannon, um, the president's strategist, but not very many. And you can kind of read between the lines about what your thoughts were about, about Steve Bannon. Scaramucci, you come right out and, and talk about how he sort of terrorized the communication staff and, and um, the press staff when he, when he got there. Um, Don McGahn, I, I just detect maybe a little tension there. So it was just interesting to see some of your, your thoughts about that. But talk a little bit about John Bolton, if you don't mind. I mean, you come right out and, and very, in a very straightforward way, talk about how a lot of the White House staff um, 
were not happy that he chose to not travel with on Air Force One and to travel with um, with the president on overseas trips. He would take his own delegation. And, and there was an, a moment where Mick Mulvaney confronted him. Yeah, and I think it was less about him not traveling with us. I think some people were probably thankful that he didn't, but I think it was more the attitude that he expected that he shouldn't have to. Um, and that he felt like he was a, a level above everyone else. There were many times where he would come to either me or someone on my, on my team and ask us to put out a statement that I knew was contrary to where the president was on a particular topic. And one of the things that um, I think is so important when you work in politics, when you aren't the principal, when you aren't the president, is that you have to remember that no one elected you to anything. They elected Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Their names were the only ones on the ballot, which means their agenda, their policies are the ones we're there to help implement and communicate about. And I think he got lost in that sometimes thinking that his agenda mattered as much, if not more than the president's and that he thought he knew better than the president. And I kind of wanted to say, John, if you feel that way, then you need to run for office and then it becomes your agenda and not somebody else's. And I think it is so important that when you are working as part of a staff, that you're a team player and that you really support the person who was elected. And for all of us, that was Donald Trump. And if he didn't want to do that, he didn't need to be there. And um, I, I think he made things much more difficult than they needed to be uh, for the team and for himself. And there was one point where um, then Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, when you guys were overseas in the UK, really let loose. I think you, you kind of described how you just let full force Irish brand at, <laughs> at John Bolton and, and kind of put him straight and the staff pretty much applauded, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you've spent time around Mick Mulvaney, so you know that generally speaking, um, he's a pretty laid back guy. He's a nice guy, he got along well with the majority of the staff. And um, in this moment, he just kind of had enough. I think, you know, we're all sitting there on this bus waiting in traffic and John Bolton's motorcade, which we had asked to, to escort the rest of the group, comes buzzing by and leaving everybody else behind. Uh, I think something just snapped. I think he'd had enough of John kind of taking his own path and not being a team player. And he let him know and he didn't hold back. Uh, I was shocked, frankly, at how tough and aggressive Mick was in that moment because again he was that more laid back um, you know fun person to be around and he laid down the law pretty heavily against John in that moment and I think everybody that saw it was frankly kind of happy that he had. What was your working relationship with with Steve Bannon and let me ask you this did you ever contribute any money to his wall project? No, I never gave any money to him for his wall project or anything else. Um, you know, I, it's, Bannon wasn't there for very long in the White House. And um, by the time I became press secretary, he was on his way out the door. And so I honestly didn't spend a significant amount of time with him. He was kind of a recluse. He kept to himself a lot, um, particularly um, in those last couple of months. And so, you know, I didn't have a lot to write that 
I didn't think had, hadn't already been written or told about Steve Bannon. And so I didn't feel like it was that necessary to weigh in. He didn't play a significant role for my time at the White House. And frankly, I didn't think he really played that significant of a role, period, in his limited uh, number of days that he was there. And then um, Anthony Scaramucci came in for about 11 days as the communications director. Um, and you share some some stories about how he essentially how he spoke very <laughs> i don't know how to how to phrase it he spoke in a forceful way to your staff yeah um mooch came in and i i think he had one mission when he arrived and he wanted to you know shake things up in the building he wanted to uh, root out leakers. And I think, you know, in his own words, there were people he was targeting that he wanted to be gone from the White House. And um, in that 11 days, not only did he take out some other people, he took himself out in that hard charging, um, you know, profanity laced exchange that he had with a reporter that that ended up playing all over the place. Um, unlike Steve Bannon, Despite the fact that Scaramucci was only there 11 days, I did have a pretty significant interaction with him during that time because we were in the same office. Um, we were both in the press and communications area, and there was so much turmoil when he first came in. Um, you know, I'd already had conversations prior to that day when the president let us know that Scaramucci would be coming in. Sean Spicer and I had talked, and he had told me that if Scaramucci came in, um, he didn't think he would stay. It was sort of an oil and water situation. And I don't think he felt like um, it, that was going to ever be something that would work out. And so shortly um, after we were sitting in the Oval Office and the president let us know that Anthony was coming in as a communications director, Sean offered his resignation. Um, and all of that happened so fast. In fact, it took place so quickly. And I was elevated to the press secretary so fast that my family was on vacation and my husband, I'd come back early and my husband and my kids were still hiking in the mountains in Maine. And I had to quickly send him a text message and say, I'm about to be announced as the new White House press secretary. And um, before I even had a chance to talk to him, it happened that quickly. And so that's why, you know, he took up a little bit more real estate in my book because that was such a pivotal moment for me and the transition into becoming the press secretary. Another thing that I don't think I knew was that in the middle of what the president called the Russia witch hunt and the whole Kavanaugh confirmation, uh, you had a, a medical scare. And, and then after you spent um, a day at Walter Reed having some tests done, you bump into someone at a, a DC restaurant called Salt and Pepper. Yeah, so it's the first and only time I think I've been to that restaurant. And, you know, I had had some complications and um, they were trying to rule out some pretty serious things, including thyroid cancer. And so I had gone into Walter Reed for a pretty extensive day of tests and biopsy and all these um, moments kind of very stressful leading up to that day and just kind of the uncertainty. And we finally get through this very intense day at Walter Reed and think, oh, we're just going to relax and decompress for a minute. My husband was with me and had been with me all day. And we're like, well, we'll try this little neighborhood restaurant in the Palisades of Washington, D.C. neighborhood. And um, 
think it's early enough. Nobody will probably even be there. We'll take this moment before we go home and, you know, throw ourselves into the, the evening chaos of getting our kids ready for bed and all those things. So we go into the restaurant, we sit down and lo and behold, just minutes after here comes Bob Mueller, um, the guy whose whole job is to essentially, you know, take down the president. And um, so that was quite the interesting moment, not quite the stress-free dinner, I think, that we had been hoping for. Thankfully, um, the test came back and I was cleared and good. And also the, the Mueller report came back and the president was cleared and vindicated as well. So um, what was a very stressful day ended up good in both circumstances. You write about how um, one of the White House lawyers, Emmett Flood, who was handling the Russia investigation for the White House, came to your office one day and, and said, there's only one other person who knows, and that's the president, but Bob Mueller would like to sit down with you, and there's four topics that he would like to talk to you about. And then you do describe that experience of going over to a nondescript concrete gray building in D.C. and, and sitting in a, a windowless, a lightless room and, and walking through these four things. Can you talk a little bit about the four things and that little experience that you had with what was kind of an extensive experience with, with the, the, the Mueller um, investigation that day? Sure. Despite the fact that I'd been assured on the front end, I, I wasn't a subject, I wasn't a target. Um, sitting down with a special counsel was still very stressful. Um, and, you know, I didn't talk about it publicly. Nobody knew that I had gone until months after it had happened. And um, I did some preparation with an attorney that Emmett had helped me identify. And we sat down in that room. And right from the very beginning, from the moment I came in, I felt like um, they were treating me as if I was some sort of common criminal, despite the fact I had come voluntarily uh, to answer questions. I was told it wouldn't take that long. I was there for six, six or so hours, um, and it was just an intense grilling. And I feel like I'm pretty well versed on uh, a, a tough Q&A session, having been in the briefing room more than 100 times and taking questions from the toughest, shrewdest journalist in the world. I felt like I could handle this and they were intense. And it was, um, you know, again, I felt like they looked at me as if I was some sort of criminal instead of somebody in government service there voluntarily. And I, I felt in that moment um, very justified in some of the pushback that we had been giving uh, to the Mueller team and it, sort of solidified in my mind that Mueller really was just the, the Republican figurehead and that the rest of his team were a group of angry Democrats that had one mission, and that was to hurt the president and hurt all of the people around him. So there might be some viewers who are still wondering if you burned the truth on the Comey firing and to make ashes for your smoky eye makeup. <laughs> wow, we're going there, okay. <laughs> Do you regret um, telling the press, um, I was in the briefing room some of the days that you, you talked about this. Do you, do you regret doing what Mueller called um, essentially perpetuating some of the falsehoods? Do you have any regrets about some of the things you said? I think if anybody perpetuated falsehoods during that entire process, uh, frankly, it was the media. For two years, they spent almost every single day perpetuating the falsehood that Donald Trump colluded with Russia in order to win the election. Um, I, I don't think that 
Um, I did anything that wasn't justified and I did a very good job in trying to illustrate the president's side and take took on a lot of water fighting back against I think what turned out to be a huge waste of taxpayers time and money on a completely bogus investigation and what we now all commonly refer to as the Russia witch hunt. Do you think that um, this book will help with your credibility? There are obviously some Americans who don't think that you have credibility. Do you think that this helps um, repair that or was this book not even targeted to the general public? Was it targeted more for, um, for conservatives, for, for Republicans? I, I don't think that this book was was cer certainly not just for Republicans. I think anybody who likes the president is going to love this book. But I think people who don't, um, if they actually will read it, I think that they might appreciate who the president is more and frankly appreciate who I am more. It was less about um, credibility. Frankly, I think I'm in pretty good standing. One of the things that frustrates me is that anytime Democrats disagree with you or can't win an argument, their go-to move is, is to, to attack you, to call you a liar, to call you a name. And uh, I think that's a sad part of where we are as a country. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately kind of their go-to move. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. I feel very comfortable about my story and I hope people enjoy it. And I hope that they learn something new about the president and about me as well. You read about one really memorable um, encounter with the Democrats. It was during the government shutdown. I believe it was in January of 2019. And Nancy Pelosi came over to the White House with Chuck Schumer uh, to talk about the shutdown. And you talk about, um, how they went out to um, to speak to the reporters outside of the after um, afterwards and told what you called a lie in the book and you expressed some frustrations about that share a little bit about that day because I know that was a memorable day in your mind too well they totally mischaracterized they said the president came in and was angry and slammed the table and stormed out of the room none of which had happened in fact Kevin McCarthy who was also in the room went out and was like I can't believe they just said that. I'm paraphrasing his words, but he's like, surely they couldn't have been in the same meeting I was because what they just described didn't take place. I'd been in the room in that moment. And despite the fact um, I've seen a lot of political spin in my life, this was just an outright total deception on what had taken place in that room. The president came in, he was pretty calm. He talked about, um, are you guys ready to make a deal? You wanna talk, Nancy? And she was like, no. And that was it. He was like, well, look, if that's if, there, if you're not willing to talk, there's no reason for us to all sit around here. So I'm out. Bye bye, which was very memorable. The president, bye bye. And he just walked out. And I think they were so angry that they hadn't got what they wanted, that they stormed out and tried to, you know, spend the lie of the century, I guess, and say that the president had, you know, just stormed off and it just didn't happen that way. Um, did you ever catch President Trump in a lie in any of your time at the White House? Do you remember feeling like, hey, I think he just told a lie there? No, not. I, I think that the president, um, one of the things I love about this president is you always know where he is. And I think you guys know that better than anybody. He's the most accessible president 
um, that we've ever seen. He's always willing to take questions from the media and he's his own best messenger. Sometimes that makes my job a little harder because he's always out there talking. Um, so you have to be able to keep up. You have to be on pace with them. But one of the things that the president did that I think so many politicians are unwilling to do is he actually was the politician, the person that was willing to go there. He was willing to tell the truth on a lot of things that people were unwilling to talk about, um, Republicans in particular, leading up to that 2016 campaign. He called out the fact that we had forgotten so many Americans for so long. And that was so much of what his 2016 campaign was about. He was willing to call out the fact that both sides had dropped the ball on that front. And I think he spent every day delivering on those things once he got elected to office. So never caught him in a lie. Okay, I'll, 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 uh, I'll have to take you on your word for that one. It does seem like those are, you have a quick wit and it seems like um, you had a knack for maybe sharing some guidance with him in a way that made him laugh. So you were able to steer him or, or give him a little bit of, of advice in a, in a witty way. There's one example I can think of several in your book actually, but one that sticks out is, um, your very first day, I think, when you were, had moved into the White House after the transition and you were the deputy principal press secretary and you're alone in the, um, in the office called Upper Press and the phone starts ringing. <laughs> yeah, so I, this was really the second day on the job and I'd gotten into the office early. The phone starts ringing off the hook and, and it's the, the main line. So I step out of my office, I go to pick up the phone. I don't even think about saying like White House press office or you know any type of introduction. I just said, hello. And the, the familiar voice on the other end asked if Sean was around, I let him know that he wasn't um, and was happy to pass on a message. And he goes, Sarah, is that you? And I was like, wait a minute. Uh, yes, sir, Mr. President, this is me. And here was the president of the United States calling in onto the main line. And um, once he knew that Sean wasn't there and he realized it was me, we struck up a quick conversation and spoke for several minutes. And in that exchange, he told me about a, uh, a beautiful tweet that he had attempted to put out that didn't go and because um, he had been, I guess, in an area that didn't have good communications. And, and when it didn't, we kind of joked about um, maybe he should go back and spend some time there the next time he has a beautiful tweet. And um, he was nice enough to laugh and not fire me in that moment. But <laughs> it was the first of probably hundreds, if not thousands of phone calls where um, the president and I shared a good laugh. And still to this day, I don't know why I felt comfortable enough to make that joke, but I guess um, maybe it broke the ice and uh, put us onto a path of having a very good uh, working relationship every day after that. Yeah, and you do talk about how you tried to steer him away from, from tweeting um, as much as you could without blatantly saying, sir, you shouldn't be doing this. Although I think you did say that a few times, but you talk about how on one Christmas, um, I think it was a Christmas Eve, you were taking a hike on a ridge above the Potomac River with your family and it's Christmas Eve and your phone and you're, you're, you're walking along this, this ridge line and along the river and you're just staring at your phone almost the whole time because it's just lighting up with, with um, alerts from a tweet storm that he was in the middle of. And then you called him as soon as you got back home to talk to him about this Christmas Eve tweet storm. Yeah, and, and in that moment, I, I reminded him maybe we could, uh, now that we're moving into the evening of Christmas Eve, it might be 
a good time to uh, shut down our Twitter for the evening and um, let everybody, including me, enjoy the rest of Christmas Eve with uh, less less tweeting. But one of the things that I actually do appreciate about the president's tweets, and people always ask me um, and tell me, why don't you tell him to stop tweeting? I think it's a good thing for the American people to have that much access to what the president's thinking. And I also think this day and age when so much of the media around the president, I think is very biased towards this president, the idea that he can go around them and get a message directly to the American people, I think is a good thing. I would be interested to see and will be interested to see um, after Donald Trump leaves office, how the next person who occupies that office um, whether or not they kind of follow in that and use that tool as a way to, to deliver a message straight to not just, I guess, the American people, but frankly, to the world. And I think the president has been uh, successful in doing that. Um, that doesn't mean you love every tweet, but I do think it's important that people have that kind of access to his thinking. There was one tweet where um, you hint in the book that he kind of egged people on a little bit, and it was right after... Um, the White House Correspondents Association dinner where a comedian um, said some um, pretty abrasive things about you. And then also the, the country was dealing with this, this crisis, um, uh, this controversy over separating children from their parents at the border. And you were in the Situation Room for a meeting on the border crisis and the president calls you into the Oval and he said, hey, what did you think about my tweet about the Red Hen, which was an episode where your family was in Virginia and you were asked to leave. So all that, so share a little bit about that, that story and that, that time in the White House. And then um, that, that what you told him about that, that tweet and you said, I think actually it's, it's causing, um, it's, it's making my security situation even a little bit more perilous is what you told him. Well, it wasn't the tweet that had made the situation difficult. He he asked me if I thought the whole thing was um, the attention, I guess, around it was was sort of cool and how people right. had rallied to my, to my side and rallied to support me. And I told him that was actually a little bit scary to have so much attention um, because, you know, I... I have a family and I don't have any security. And he was so surprised. I think he thought because he's so surrounded um, by Secret Service all the time that I think he felt like most of the rest of us also had Secret Service. And I, I really don't know um, that it had crossed his mind that there would be a security threat to any of those of us that worked for him until that moment. And so I just wanted to clarify that, but the, the, the difficult part was in that red hen moment, um, the idea that because I worked for the president and because someone disagreed with me politically um, and maybe philosophically, that they would ask me to leave a restaurant and do so in such a public way with my family, um, many of whom, this my husband's side of the family, were Hillary Clinton supporters and had voted for her in 2016. And so um, we're sitting there and this restaurant owner comes over, tells me what a terrible person I am and kicks me out of her establishment. Um, what a lot of people don't know is what happened after that. And we, you know, quietly left the restaurant. We don't make a scene. My husband and I went home and the rest of our family went on to another restaurant that night across the street. 
and the restaurant owner from the Red Hen in Lexington actually followed them and gathered her friends together to protest them outside of a second restaurant, um, despite the fact that I wasn't even there. And, you know, I, I just don't think that certainly people should be able to agree to disagree, but that level of anger um, launched at any individual, um, I, I felt was uncalled for, and I think puts us in a dangerous place in our country. And you wrote about how you actually didn't get dinner that night. It had been a long week for you. You had driven four hours to get to this restaurant with your family to get a little downtime to spend with your family. And you went back to the place where you were staying, the farmhouse you were staying, and had a bowl of cereal for dinner. But, um, and you, you actually talk um, very movingly later about how you became afraid for your children's lives. But do you think, Sarah, do you think that any of the White House staff internalized the message that some people were trying to send to the White House at that point, which was about separating um, immigrant uh, children from their parents at the border. Do you think White House staff equated those two things and, and maybe took a step back from the policy because of some of the protests? Certainly, I think that it would be um, for anybody not to understand people's frustration and, and their anger towards that. Um, certainly, I, I don't think that um, me personally, or a lot of the people in the staff, nobody wanted to see that happen. I think it was such a difficult situation in determining how best to handle this crisis. Uh, I think one of the most tragic parts is the difficult journey that people go down, women and children, uh, the amount of sexual abuse and assault that people undergo uh, on that journey, crossing the border is awful. Nobody wants to see that happen. Nobody wants to see kids separated from their parents. And I think that is one of the reasons we have to take a real look at our immigration system, how we fix it, how we do better as a country. Um, I don't think anybody wanted that and certainly um, was very aware of the difficulties and even understood the frustration and the anger. But I don't think that um, certain peaceful protesting totally understand and have no problem with, but the type of aggressive nature that a lot of us um, had to go through, I, I, I don't think was very justified and certainly not a, a good positive step in the right direction when you have a member of Congress like Maxine Waters telling people to get in our faces and let them know we're not welcome anywhere, anytime. I just don't think that's positive. I don't think it was helpful for the country. Um, and I, I certainly would like to see us be able to have some ability to have those conversations and disagree with one another, but do so in a way that isn't so threatening um, and dangerous to those individuals. Um, you write in the book about leaks and how the president at one point said the leaks have to stop. And you talk about how you believe that the president talks directly to reporters and you share an incident where he actually calls people and, and has conversations with reporters off the record. Um, do you think that there will be more leaks as we get closer to the election, um, especially from maybe military leadership, or what are your thoughts about leaks and why these leaks still continue to happen? Look, every White House has had leaks. Um, that's, that's not new, but it's certainly, I think the level is uh, much higher in this White House than we've seen in the past. 
I, I think people get excited about the proximity to power. People leak for different reasons. Some people want to, to drive an agenda. Some people are hoping to, you know, feel important and let everybody know they're in the room. Some people do it to settle scores with people that they don't like so that they can take them down. Um, I'd love to say that I don't continue, but unfortunately, I know that's the case. I think that leaking uh, is such a, I think, disloyal um, and disgusting practice. I'm not a big fan of it, as I write about in the book, and I'd love to see it stop, but I don't see that happening in this White House or any White House after. Um, do you have any idea who Anonymous was? I don't know if that you would tell us if you do, but um, do you know who, do you suspect who it was? And can you maybe kind of just des describe the person's role? Um, I have guesses, but you know, I don't have anything hard and fast. If I did, I would have um, certainly announced that long ago because I just don't think that um, that type of action to me is very cowardly. If you feel so strongly about something, stand up and be bold in your declaration. Um, I have no problem uh, talking about what I believe in and being out front and outspoken on what my beliefs are and why I believe them and who I support. And I would call on that person to do the same. And I know with the, um, the Atlantic story um, being in, in, in the news, is it possible that some pieces of that story were possible because um, you and some of the other staff weren't with him at all times? Is it possible that he made that suckers and losers comment when you were not around? Uh, that conversation was very specific to the decision about whether or not he went to that cemetery. Um, I was there for those two conversations that took place around that decision. I was one of only a handful of people that were part of the discussion and the majority of everybody that was part of that conversation has come out and said it didn't happen. But more than just in that moment, Jennifer, I spent two and a half years almost every single day next to the president. And I watched him interact, not just um, here in the United States, but literally all over the world with men and women of our armed services. And I know the level of respect and appreciation that this president has for the people who keep us free and allow us to live in this country. Uh, very good. Um, I know we're getting close to the end here. So is there any one last little bit, a favorite part of the book that you want to just uh, tease to people a little bit? <laughs> I think the whole book is great. I think everybody should uh, not just buy a copy for themselves, but buy several for all their friends and family. Um, you know, in all seriousness, I poured, I think, my heart and soul into this book. And um, I think even if you're not political or a political junkie, there's something in this book for everybody. I think people can laugh, they can cry, and I think there's a, something that everyone will enjoy in reading my book, and I hope they will. One last question. Everybody knows, honestly, Americans, everyone makes mistakes. Do you have any insight into why the president is so willing to ever admit a mistake, ever? I, I think that the president is somebody who's a fighter. He likes to push back. And he's, you know, that's just who he is. I don't think that anybody who supported him in 2016 was hoping for a different person. They wanted the fighter. They wanted Donald Trump, somebody to come in and shake up Washington in a way that had never been done before. And I think they got what they wanted. He's delivered 
on all of the things that he set out to do, he has either done it or made significant progress towards it. Um, and I think that's why he'll do well again in 2020. Thank you, Sarah. It was good to talk to you. You bet. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.